0: Welcome back to the DealMakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Sengcaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together SengCaster. I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Sendcaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically, you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now. If you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Sendcaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into SEN, And that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out, that investing in wine has been one of the best-kept secrets amongst the ultra-wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one-third of the volatility of the stock market and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the CEN, and that is CSN Zebra, E-N dot A-I forward slash deal makers and by just going there you will be able to redeem your discount. righty hello everyone and welcome to the deal maker show. So today we have a very interesting guest. So this entrepreneur, you know it's a it obviously it, it reminds me a little bit of myself because he also did from legal to investment banking then from investment banking to an entrepreneur. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit today on his journey and also on on building, scaling and financing a company in such a uh, heavily regulated and top space like is cannabis. Uh, but again, you know, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. So I guess that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ankur Rungta. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Alejandro. Happy to be here. Appreciate
0: you having me. So originally born in Columbus, Ohio, but you grew up in Buffalo in New York. So tell us a little of your upbringings. Give us that walk through memory
1: lane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My my parents uh, are immigrants from India. They moved uh, to this country in the seventies and uh my dad moved to Columbus actually to go to Ohio State University for his graduate work. So I was born there. My dad was in the auto industry, so he bounced around a little bit. Uh we moved to western New York to the Buffalo area when I was five, and I lived there. Uh, until I graduated high school, so most of my formative years in Western New York. Yes, I am a Bills fan. It's very painful, uh, but you know, you're it's part part of being from from Buffalo, and uh, and yeah, and actually, my my brother, who's a co-founder of C3, um, he actually still lives in the Buffalo area. So uh, so we've got a lot of ties there. And then uh, and then after that, I ended up going to to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to to go to the University of Michigan for undergrad.
0: And you did everything there in Michigan. I mean, undergrad, law school. why, why did you go to law school?
1: You know, it's a it's a great question. I had studied almost exclusively, kind of math, finance, you know, very quantitative subjects growing up, and in high school, that was always the focus. You know, my my parents, like a lot of Indian parents, had aspirations that I might want to be a doctor someday, and and I unfortunately uh, dashed those expectations for them. But but yeah, so I, I studied a lot of quantitative subjects. I I focused on finance and accounting as an undergrad, and so I started feeling like you know it would be good to to round out my skill set and and focus on something a little different and really wanted to develop a, a different set of skills a different set of muscles and and that was the idea.
0: But you even became a lawyer. So I mean what well, what well, what was the thought process behind hey you know I'm going to go into becoming a lawyer because you definitely course correct very quickly.
1: You didn't last <laughs> too long as a lawyer. Yeah. Well, you know it's interesting. I mean I I was a lawyer for a short period of time and I really it was a very sort of corporate, you know, law transactional sort of environment. So the way I looked at it coming out of law school is I thought it the, the way for me to develop the best set of experience and, you know, most rounded skill set was to do a few years of law and then a few years in finance and I felt like that combination could be really powerful. And so, you know, coming out of law school I had an opportunity to go work at Sullivan and Cromwell, which is a great firm in New York and and you know, I'd always heard phenomenal things about that training, that experience, you know, it can be very intense, but I think you get a lot out of it as well. And so um, so for me, I think it was it was not about doing it long term, but it was going in, putting in the two years, you know, really trying to get a lot out of it, get a lot of reps in. And and then ultimately, I transitioned over to the investment banking side.
0: Now, on the investment banking side, I, I do interview a lot of entrepreneurs that have that investment banking side, um, you know, type of background or, or consulting background, and you know they 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 go on and become really great entrepreneurs and i guess that's because maybe as an investment banker you have the exposure to what works and what doesn't you know when it comes to to businesses but really looking at it from a 30,000 foot view and seeing the outcome so what do you think you know for you as an investment banker what what kind of background or 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 training did you get in order to understand how to execute or operate better you know later on
1: yeah no look i think uh I think both my investment banking and my my corporate law time, you know, that experience has been really valuable for me in this business. You know, certainly when it comes to things like capital markets, balance sheet management, uh, thinking about how to finance and capitalize these businesses, you know, I've got a deep background on that side. I've got a lot of relationships in that world too. So it's been really helpful. Um, I mentioned my brother, he he has a similar background. He was in, in banking and then in private equity. And so... Uh, So he built some really interesting skills, you know, from the, from the private equity side as well. But, you know, our, our business is very kind of, it's an environment that's, that's got a lot of capital markets activity. It can be very deal heavy, meaning you're often entering new markets, you're, you're entering into, you know, real estate transactions or, or different types of operating partnerships. So it's a really heavy deal-making environment uh, in this industry. And so I think in cannabis, in particular, as a CEO of a company, you know, as a of a multi state business that's growing, uh, all those skills come into play. So I think it's I think it I think it's been really I feel like there's actually quite a linear path in what I did in finance and and what I'm doing now. And talking about the path,
0: 2016 was a busy year, and not only you know you 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 went at it and you started one, but you started two companies. So so yeah. walk us through this process and how things unfolded for you to all of a sudden see yourself there, like building two companies?
1: Honestly, I always felt like I would do something entrepreneurial. So for me, it was just a question of when and and what the right opportunity was. And, and, you know, I, I mentioned my brother because him and I were very much in that mindset together and and looking to sort of exit the traditional finance world and, and do something more entrepreneurial. And so, um, so in a sense, it felt very natural for us. I, I think that's where our inclinations really are. And And, you know, we'll talk about this more as we get into this discussion, but like we really do view ourselves as operators, meaning um, we don't we're not driven first by capital markets considerations or or finance considerations. We really do think about the business in terms of fundamentals. And so I think we have a great perspective on the finance piece of it uh, and the capital markets piece of it. and, And we can be, you know, I think pretty effective in that part of our business, but we're also know we're really trying to operate the business in the right way and the fundamentals and so um so i just mentioned that because it it really was always part of our thinking but but yeah we left we both kind of left the finance world at the same time and and we had been really kind of exploring two different two different verticals two different industries one was of course cannabis that's our primary business that's c3 industries uh but we also you know we're also looking at film opportunities and and it started uh we started you know, doing small film financing deals, actually, in the in, you know, kind of 2013 time frame, And doing that, you know, a, a series of small kind of investments in the space really kind of got us familiar with what was going on there and made us think, you know what, we can actually develop and produce our own content over time. And, th- and that's ultimately what we did. So we launched Nickel City Pictures around that time, which is our, our film and television company, and then C3 Industries, which is our cannabis business. And And really on the media side, we have two partners that run that business day to day. You know, I'm primarily involved kind of strategically at the board level. And and then C3 is really what I what I spend all my time on.
0: So let's talk about C3, because, you know, 2016 was really the time where the incredible wave around cannabis, you know, was was really forming. and, And it's unbelievable, like how the industry has exploded in a very positive way since then. So. So why cannabis? I mean, how, how do you come across cannabis and and why did you feel that this was, you know, a business that you had to build?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think for me, it started at a personal level. I've always been very passionate about cannabis. It's been part of my life, you know, my entire adult life. Um, and so at a personal level, I have a huge passion for, for cannabis, for flour. You know, I've always sort of been a, a connoisseur of great cannabis flour and Uh, So, so it started, I think from a, from a personal interest. Um, But I think as, you know, as we were uh, kind of getting into our professional careers, our finance careers, you know, I was also watching sort of what was happening on the regulatory front and uh, it just, you know, there's clearly this, this incredible, you know, rare opportunity to, to see an industry come out of prohibition and, and get built, you know, right in front of us from the ground up. And so. Uh, so it was very exciting for me with my personal passion to also have an opportunity to, to sort of be part of the, these initial steps into the licensed, you know, and regulated world. And so, uh, so it was great timing. It was something I felt like I was, you know, cut out for, had the right skills for, uh, between, you know, myself, my two co-founders, you know, we, we felt like we checked all the boxes, meaning, uh, we could raise the capital, we could. You know, manage the balance sheet. We could build a great organization. We could actually operate these facilities and produce great products, which ultimately, you know, that was the goal more than anything. And so, um, so you know, it, it's you know, you mentioned how quickly it's grown. I mean, I I tell people often I view it as a gold rush mentality around this industry, meaning it's inherently drawing just a huge amount of interest and. Uh, I would say almost, you know, over, uh, you know, there's, there's almost too much interest at times and that's why it has to be regulated in a certain way, you know, just like other comparable products while I'm generally a sort of a a capitalist free market guy. I think you need to put certain, certain kind of frameworks in place around these types of industries. And so, uh, but, but it truly is, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly dynamic environment, incredibly competitive, a lot of smart people in the space. But it's got a fluidity that can be really challenging and, uh, and, and it's not an industry where you can sit still. You have to be moving all the time and you have to be thinking about your next next steps. And, and the market is evolving so quickly and, and so differently in each of the states um, that, it, again, it's just a, a, in my mind, I, I, you know, I, I think unique may be too strong of a word, but it's a, definitely a very unusual environment and, and one that you have to be on your toes. So what ended up
0: being the business model of C3 for the people that are listening to, to get it? How do you guys make money?
1: Yeah, so our business is, you know, we're what's called a multi-state operator, and MSO. Uh, so what, effectively what that means in cannabis is we have business operations in more than one state. And that that is to be differentiated from companies that have only a presence in a single market in the U.S., a single state. And so among the MSO, you know, kind of uh, spectrum, there are a half dozen very large MSOs that are in 20 plus states. and you know, have $5 billion plus public market caps. There are another few dozen MSOs that are, you know, anywhere from two to 10 states. Um, Some are public, some are private like us. Um, So we're kind of in that mid-cap MSO territory, but, you know, with with aspirations to continue scaling our business and and ultimately, you know, our goal is to be, you know, in that leading category of, of companies in the space. You know, our, our business model is is at this time we are vertically integrated in the four states that we operate in. So we're in Michigan, Massachusetts, Missouri and Oregon in all four of those states. We hold cultivation, processing and retail licenses and, you know, happy to go into more detail about why we approach things that way. It is it's a little you know, unusual compared to most industries to be to be you know, involved in all parts of that of, of, of the, you know, of that chain.
0: Yeah. So why don't you expand on that so that um, you know? Because people probably listening now are wondering, like, why why you're tackling it that way on the execution side. So so would you mind expanding on that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few reasons for it. I mean, some of it's driven by the regulatory environment, and so uh, you know, if you're in a market and you're already having a presence there, and there are lucrative opportunities to go downstream or upstream and capture more margin, and particularly if you're in a limited license state where uh, you know, there's sort of a, a, a regulatory limitation on how much competition there may be, and so you know, it just often makes sense once you're already there, and if you have those opportunities to grab up, you know, more revenue, more margin, and and try to capture more more market share in those in those states. And I think you know, the challenge can be you know, our, it, as a business, there you know, cultivation, processing, retail—they're three very different businesses, and so I think that it can be dangerous if you're if you're you know for some companies that are trying to do that but not able to execute it well. So I do think it's important that you look at each each of those three functions individually and and make sure that you're actually, you know, kind of running a a strong business fundamentally. Um, but but I think from our standpoint if you can do that and you're in some of these markets then it does, it does there's a real strong rationale to try to grab that market share, grab that margin and and build these types of vertically integrated platforms. I think as the industry matures, you'll probably start to see more differentiation, more specialization, certainly as the markets open up from a regulatory standpoint, some of the logic of being vertical will also kind of go away and so, you know, I think we view ourselves first and foremost as a product company and as a as a consumer products company in the cannabis space and so I think our long-term focus is going to be primarily on the production side of things, but you know, as I say that, we've got 20 retail stores and we're we're going to be adding more. So it's certainly A major part of our business but but i do think that over time we really want to establish ourselves you know as a as you know a a strong kind of cpg company in this space and how much capital have you guys raised to date to date we've raised you know over 100 million dollars and that's in different forms about 65 or 70 million dollars of that has been is is on the balance sheet and that's uh through some equity and some debt and then separately we've also raised another $30, $40 30-40 million dollars of sale leaseback capital uh, and that's primarily to finance our large production facilities and that's a pretty commonly used financing structure in, in this space just given the lack of you know traditional commercial real estate lending options and so uh, so in total between balance sheet and sale leaseback you know over 100 million dollars hey guys so pardon the interruption here i got to
0: tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And typically when you go and raise capital, I mean, obviously those are very sophisticated investors, very specific. How do you go about finding those? Because those are obviously different than the ones that would sa- would finance, like the traditional tech startup or or brick and mortar or, or, or whatever that is. I mean, in this case, it's, it's pretty innovative. Uh, uh, obviously a space to that where you have not only the risk of building a company but then also the risk of dealing with regulation. So how do you guys go about finding those investors?
1: Yeah, that's no, a great question. No, look I, I think just at a high level it, it is absolutely a challenging capital environment. you know a lot of your traditional financing sources, certainly you know the banks are not lending into this space, even your Uh, You know, your large institutional equity players in the US are are for the most part not touching the space. So you're really, you're really limited to either, you know, specialized, you know, lenders in in the industry, which some of those guys are, you know, have have public vehicles, some of them are private, or you're looking at uh, specialized private equity or family offices that are looking at the space. So it's a pretty narrow spectrum of what's available to you. So that I think that's the first challenge. You know, in our case, I think we really benefit from the relationships that Michelle and I have built, my my brother and I have built over the years. You know, we we take a lot of pride, and we often say this, and and we joke about it with our old. You know, I worked at Molus and Company, which is a, a very active investment bank in cannabis now, and um, I always joke with those guys. We've never paid a banker a fee, and we're really proud of that. We've never paid a broker, a placement agent, so we've done it all direct through our own relationships. And you know, when we've raised rounds of capital, we've gone out and effectively syndicated them ourselves to groups of investors and and that could be combinations of family offices Uh, we've got a number of of cannabis focused private equity funds in our cap table Uh, some friends and family from from earlier on uh but but really it's been mostly that family office and small cannabis focused private equity fund targets that we've gone to and and you know i i'm i'm always a big fan of trying to do it ourselves that's been a lot of our strategy is Try not to pay fees, try not to, um, you know, take other forms of dilution or cost in these things. And so not everybody can do that. Um, I I understand that. And it's, it's, it's frankly, for us, it is a big uh, uh, sort of resource uh, question of, you know, as we go forward and continue to scale our business, do we, should we be doing that ourselves? Or does it, is there actually a logic to bringing in the right partner, you know, either investment banking or placement agent or whatever it may be, Uh, because I think there's. There's certainly a time and energy that goes into doing it ourselves. But but we've, we've had that fortune of doing it ourselves up to this point. We've been, I think, really, again, focused long term. So we're trying to not just find uh, any capital, but we're trying to find the right sort of capital that aligns with our vision for the business. And that's part of the reason we didn't take the company public early on when there were opportunities to. Uh, we, we felt like that would create a different sort of uh, short term pressure on us that that we weren't uh, that we were trying to avoid. Uh, so we've been pretty deliberate about how we've done things. We're we're not, you know, uh, very levered up like some companies in our space are. We try to limit our use of leverage as much as we can. And, you know, just try to do things in a step-by-step deliberate sort of way and, and through a lot of direct relationships. Now, uh,
0: in this sense, I mean, when, when, Anything that you could share with the audience to kind of like get an idea of the scope and, and the size of um, C3? I mean, is there anything that you can share around maybe like employee number or anything else?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, our current headcount is is between 400 and 450. and uh, That's across, you know, all four states as well as our corporate team. You know, we expect to do uh, in 22, uh, give or take 100 or 110 million dollars of revenue, just to give you a sense. And we do expect to generate pretty meaningful EBITDA cash flow against that. Um, We're we're very, very focused on trying to keep our operations efficient and show, uh, you know, true kind of cash flow and profitability to the market. We think that's a, you know, that's how we sort of build real value long term. So, uh, so, so that that you know, hopefully, would give people a little bit of a sense of what we're doing.
0: Now, you were alluding to the headcount, and also, I mean, in this company, you're building it with your brother. I mean, you know, it's interesting because on there's a book. It's called The Founder's Dilemma, you know, very good book. And on that book, the the author, he's a professor at Harvard. He talks about how the dynamics, you know, tend to be a little bit different when you build a business with a family member. So in this case, I mean it sounds like for you guys it has worked, uh being family members and working together. <laughs> You'll right?
1: have to ask him someday, but yeah, I'll, I'll give you my but perspective. Hey you, but... <laughs> you you you
0: you you built something successful. I mean that, that's ultimately that that's our result. So I guess Why do you think why do you think it has worked between the two of you guys?
1: That's it's a great question and something that we talk a lot about and and we get asked about a lot. I I think uh, you know, to me, it's it's. I think some family partnerships can work really well and some don't. And I think it, it it really comes down to the temperament of the individual people and how well they fit together. In our family, there's just two of us. You know, we grew up very close. Our family is very close. So certainly, there was like a strong foundation there already that. You know, of, of you know, just a very tight relationship and a lot of trust. Um, I think beyond that, though, I think what's interesting for Vishal and I is that we are very different in our in our kind of views on things. In some cases, we often have different perspectives, but we feel like they're very complementary. And I think we've learned how to uh, play off of each other's strengths and, you know, ultimately take our you know different perspectives and hopefully. You know, distill them together into a into a balanced view and a balanced perspective on things, and and so I do think that there's been a really nice complementary nature to 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 the way that you know to the different way that we look at things and the different perspectives that we have, and so so I think that's what's what's kind of kept us you know as a company kind of in a good balanced position. We don't you know we don't go too far in the direction that I want to lead us. We don't necessarily go too far in the direction that he wants to lead us, and we we seem to find a good a good place and. We've got a really kind of open, transparent sort of a relationship. So there's you know, which I think is just absolutely crucial, you know, in any partnership, but but certainly when family's involved. And so, you know, we've just again having having that level of trust, we can really kind of have any discussion without it going to a negative place. And and uh and we're I think we're very open to saying, you know what, you're right in this case. Let's let's follow your guidance on this one, you know, or or you know, we're, 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 we try not to be ego driven with each other, um, which I think is really important.
0: Now, obviously COVID has been challenging. And then also COVID has been uh, a game changer for, for, for many, many companies too. What, what kind of impact or, or how has been that, uh, that transformation for C3 as a result of the impact of COVID?
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been an incredibly interesting couple of years, you know, and, and, and challenging of course. And, you know, the way that we think about it, uh, in terms of our company's history, you know, we founded it in late 16, early 17. But our first operating asset went online in March of 18. So if you think about it, we're in March of 22 right now, and March of 20 COVID started. So basically, we had two years of operating in a non COVID environment. And then since then, we've had two years of operating in a COVID environment. So fully half of our sort of operating life as a company has been in this in this world that we live in. So it's it's pretty interesting, you know, you forget sometimes how long, you know, this journey has been now. Uh, But, but, you know, it all, you know, I I remember vividly February of 20. You know, I'm a pretty voracious, you know, consumer of of news, and and I follow international news pretty closely. And, and, you know, I, I told my colleagues, my partners in early February, I said, we got to get ready for this thing right now. It's there's no way that it's, it's gonna, you know, not kind of spread to other parts of the world. And, Of course we saw what was happening in china at that time so you know we started uh having some very intense discussions in in that month of february because our candidly our expectation in the beginning was that we would be forced to shut down or reduce our staffing levels or you know do something fairly extreme and um you know and in in our business particularly on the production side you know you're growing plants and it's in a perpetual cultivation cycle so there really is no way to turn off the facility even for a matter of a few days without really destroying your business operations. And then, you know, it could be a six month restart of that facility then. And so uh, we had no idea whether would they force us to shut down? Could they tell us, you have to go to a skeleton crew, you know, so we started making all these contingency plans, you know, as an organization, if your revenue shuts off immediately, there's still a lot of costs, you know, and fixed costs in place. So we we started looking at liquidity planning and all kinds of, you know, challenging stuff and and painful discussions. But, you know, we, we, we tried to prepare ourselves as best we could. And then uh, and then, you know, the way it ultimately played out, which is fascinating, is, you know, pretty much in every state in the U.S. that has a licensed cannabis market, cannabis was deemed essential. And that, you know, was not something that I think industry leaders had any real expectation of. If anything, most were worried that it would go in the other direction. Uh, and so. Being deemed essential allowed us to continue operating, and so we we literally never shut down even for a minute. Any of our production facilities, our stores, our corporate team, Uh, we made of course adjustments from a safety standpoint. But you know, we literally operated every day through. Um, I I traveled extensively throughout 2020. (laughs) There was no, you know, we had a lot of assets in development all around the country in the different states, and so you know, for me personally, there was a tough, you know, sort of calculus of of how much risk. Am I willing to take, you know, what do I want to accomplish with my business during this time? And it was, you know, my wife had an opinion, of course, I've got young children. So it was a, it was an interesting time to say the least. And for us, you know, we made the call that we were going to push through it and continue executing our plan. We frankly didn't really feel like we had any other choice. And so I often tell people in March of 20, we had our, we had an Oregon production facility operating. We had a Michigan production facility operating, and we had one retail store in Michigan. Uh, since then, we've op- opened another dozen retail stores during COVID, and two new production facilities. And so, you know, we've marched along all the way through, and 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 made it work. But, but even you know, even in in continuing onward and and operating that, you know, created its own challenges as. You know, just making sure we are our team was safe, that we were taking the right precautions. Again, we operate brick and mortar retail and manufacturing businesses. So there's no way to avoid having people there. Um, and so it was just a question of how to do it in the safest possible way and and really balance, you know, everybody's well-being with continuing to, to grow and develop the business.
0: Now, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to 2016. Where you were getting started, you know, with with Vishal and 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 the founding team, you know, with with C three, and imagine you had the opportunity of having a sit down with your younger self and giving you that younger anchor one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why? Given what you now know,
1: I'll, I'll I'll answer the question in two different ways. I think in cannabis, what we've seen and and I think the biggest lesson that we've learned is that as much as we believe in ourselves our products our brands you have to pay attention to the regulatory environment uh, because it has such an impact on the business itself and and what I mean by that is I started the business our first operating market was Oregon and the thesis was we know it's very competitive we know there's no limits on licenses but we can compete anywhere we're confident in our model and and surely enough we've done okay there we've made money but the reality is, there's only so much success you can have in a market like Oregon because of how saturated it is and and so since then we've learned you know what we also need to look at markets that have less saturation that have more limita- limitations on licensing and so while our core thesis that we're going to be the best and we're going to operate strongly on fundamentals and we can compete in any market that continues to be the case i have a healthier respect for the regulatory piece and what it the the impact that it has on on businesses. Um, And so, so I think from an industry standpoint, I would say that's what I would tell my younger self is don't be so confident that you can overcome any regulatory environment because you're such a good operator. Um, You know, take, take that, take both things into account in a, in a more balanced way. And then I think generally as an entrepreneur, you know, I've, I was always taught, you know, by people that I respected mentors and told, you know, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint kind of prepare yourself mentally in that way. And and don't get too high, don't get too low, you know, understand that there's going to be challenging moments. But, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones I think that can kind of navigate those and stay pretty balanced and not burn themselves out, not, you know, get too excited and too, you know, confident, too arrogant and, and blow up their business that way. And so I think, Really understanding that it's a long process, and that really try to maintaining that that balance and that balanced view on it, and 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 then I think for your own mental sanity, but also I think that allows you to make the right decisions for the business long term. And so, uh, so I think when I started this, I didn't fully appreciate that, and I would get you know worked up in a good or bad way over you know you know in retrospect what were more minor things. And I think I've learned now that. That it's just not a healthy or successful way to run a business, and and so, and I think, you know, other than the you know having a billion dollar idea in some tech space or something, I mean, most most paths to success are long and and you know take a lot of hard work, and and there's no you know there's no quick there's no quick uh, you know quick path in in most cases, so you got to be ready to put that time in long term, and but also approach it the right way mentally. Absolutely.
0: So, Ankur, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: I think the best way is email always. You know, my email is, is uh, you know, out there, but it's encore at C3Industries.com. So, I'm always happy to talk to people that are aspiring entrepreneurs or uh, you know, interested in the space. Um, so, that, that would be the best way. And then, you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So, I would say if people want to follow me on, on LinkedIn, then you know, I, I often kind of uh, share some of my thoughts on the industry and other things there. Amazing. Well, Ankur, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. I appreciate it, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. If you like the show,
0: make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business,